Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Well, hey, and thanks for listening in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by the Reverend Jack Shatama, author and ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. So, hello. Thanks, Lauren. It's good to be with you. Great. Well, thanks for being here today and taking some time out of your schedule to be with us. Uh, I usually introduce my guests, kind of how I know them, and in this case, I really don't know you. I just have become a big fan of your podcast. Jack hosts the Non-Anxious Leaders podcast. We'll give a plug for it off the top. Uh, it's found on, you have it on iTunes and then on your website, right? Sure. Yeah, it's on most uh, platforms. Yeah, but it's a it's a really it's a really good website or excuse me, a really good podcast for breaking down some basics about systems theory or family systems theory. And we'll talk more about that. Uh, but before we, before we dive too much into that, I wanted to, to ask you to introduce yourself, share your story as much as you like, and then kind of talk more about that if you would. Sure. Um, I grew up in the DC area and uh, did not grow up a Christian. Uh, grew up in a secular household with professional parents. Uh, but in my late 20s, uh, being married and having two kids, I started to realize there was something missing and uh, happened to have a series of people who uh, shared their faith with me over the course of several years and uh, finally came to the point where I felt like I should check out this Jesus guy. And I remember praying a prayer, actually. Uh, it was, Jesus, if you are who they say you are, show me. And um, so that was, uh, I guess, the fall of 1987. And wow. at, at, from that point in time, I went to church, uh, got involved in Bible study, um, it got involved in ministry outside the church. And by the July 1991, I was uh, a pastor. So things, Jesus really did show me things happen wow, so yeah. quickly. Four <laughs> yeah. years. Four years. You don't yeah. time. Yeah, that, uh, but, and in our denomination, you can uh, start as what's called a student pastor. So mm -hmm. I started seminary at the same time and uh, graduated from seminary in 1995. And it was in seminary that I, that I encountered Edwin Friedman's Generation to Generation. And that's where I was exposed to family systems theory and it took. And it has really been a big part of my life ever since, uh, both personally and as a leader in the church and in the nonprofit world. Uh, I pastored for nine years and then in 2000 was assigned to lead the camp and retreat ministry for our region mm -hmm. of the United Methodist Church which is the state of Delaware and the Eastern shore of Maryland. And I've been doing that for 20 years. So, uh, but uh, we are church related. And so I'm, I'm involved in Christian ministry and still connected to churches in that way. Here's a question I didn't think to ask you even pre in our pre-conversation, how far up the coast of Maryland does it go to your region? Um, it goes up to Cecil County. Um, so we're on the, the Eastern shore of Maryland is the whole chest, you know, Eastern side of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh -huh. And uh, so it it goes all the way up to northeastern Maryland, northeastern corner of Maryland. Interesting. Uh, back in a former life, I like to joke about 
uh, when I was an independent Baptist, I worked as a youth director for a Baptist church in Elkton, Maryland, which is Cecil no County. Kidding. Just across, what? You know, just across wow. the border from how they call it Newark, as opposed to those yeah Newark, yeah, where the University of Delaware is. Newark, Delaware, mm-hmm. yeah. who pronounce it differently. But. So uh, I live in Cecil County, Maryland. Elkton is our county seat. Um, I really? Live, yeah, you know, 30 minutes. I live in kind of the bottom part of the county, but I also pastored uh, in Chesapeake City, which is the next mm-hmm. town down from Elkton. And I pastored in Port Deposit, which is also in Cecil County, west of Elkton. So, uh, wow, what a small world. Yeah. Uh, which <laughs> which church, small. which Baptist church? Newark Baptist Church. So it was okay. a funny thing. I think it was started in, in Newark, Delaware. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, over the years they bought land across the border in Elkton, but kept the name. So. Wow. Uh, what a small world. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's <funny>. great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I usually ask my guests if what, if anything from your, from your time and experience as a Christian in your past toward what it means to be as a Christian now, if anything has changed and anything you'd like to highlight or uh, reflect on from that time? Well, I think um, it's, you know, my own journey, I think, is maybe similar to a lot of people who come to faith after uh, after childhood, maybe uh, as a young adult or later. And that is, you know, it starts out um, really focused on uh, serving Jesus and uh, making difference in the uh, a difference in the world, and then as you get kind of uh, sucked into the institution of the church, now you know whether that's a denomination or even a single congregation, yeah. um, it, you spend a lot of time uh, focusing on how to change that institution, and so yeah. uh, you know it's not that I don't want to make a difference in the world. I, you know, I'm involved in a, uh, we have an after school program, uh, for, you know, young people at risk, uh, you know, try to be out in the world making a difference. But, uh, so much of what I think now is just, um, how, how are we going to get the church to move now? I guess Mm, the broader question, you know, for what it means to be a Christian, I think is really up for grabs right now. I think, um, just as our, our politics are polarized, I think, um, you know, the, the, Christianity in the U.S. is polarized, and you know it's it's I think part of that, maybe even a central part of the culture war in terms of what does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, is it yeah. is it about having the right identity, uh, mm-hmm. or is it about um, you know serving sacrificially in a way that represents you know what? you know, we believe God wants for the world, you know, theologically, we'd say the kingdom yeah. of God or the reign of God. And so yeah. um, I think uh, right now we're in the midst of that struggle. And, you know, I'm hoping I know which way it goes. I think I know which way God wants it to go. Um, mm. So uh, so I think that's where where I think things are headed is that the, the identity of Christianity is moving from uh, what used to be uh, you know, Christendom, where Christianity was the center of the culture, which probably yeah. peaked in the 50s, early 60s, yep. and and Christianity is becoming marginalized. And and I think that's a good thing. You know, as I mm. study church history, whenever yeah. uh, Christians have been outside of power, um, they've made the biggest difference for God. And so um, somehow, you know, this decline of Christianity uh, m- may be, you know, the beginning of 
we who remain <laughs> to uh, to to really uh, actually have a way to speak truth to power. Well, we don't want to we don't want to believe that, do we? <laughs> yeah, that being right. marginalized or pushed off to the side could actually be a good thing. No. No, of course not. Um, and and we get angry at uh, those who disagree with us, who we think are you know part of the cause of it to happen. And I don't you know care which side of the divide you're on. You think the other side is the cause, um, but yeah. uh, it, you know it's just you know just like any family divided, it's just kind of in the nature of the conflict. Yeah, I don't know. This may or may not be related to what you're speaking of, but I've noticed. Um, as a church planter myself, I follow a lot of evangelical leaders, and I notice. I'm, I'm curious if it's this way for you in the United Methodist Church, but I notice, like in the Disciples of Christ, in my context, there's what I would call like a remnant theology. Like we're the only ones left. We're the only ones faithful, following God. And conversely, like in the, so much of the evangelical world, there's this like hey, we're prospering because we're the faithful ones, like, because we're doing it right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, well, and and I, yeah, I've, I've seen that too uh, in our own denomination where um, the, you know, there's a, basically we're about to split over LGBTQ plus inclusion. Right, um, right. The, you know, the, the, a lot of the power churches are yeah. uh, more evangelical and mm -hmm. um, I think tend to have that viewpoint and um, you know, it remains to be seen. You know, they 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 are doing some things right. They're reaching people, but yeah. uh, you know, but they're. I think you know, some people want to be told what to believe, and other people want to, um, you know, be able to uh, discern and interpret God, and in, you know, in the way that they feel led. And so, um, my my daughter was a youth pastor before she became ordained, and. One of my proudest moments was when she left uh, as a youth pastor and one of the 16 year olds got up and said, you know, what what I liked about Megan is she didn't tell us what to think. She taught us how to think. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and um, so that's, you know, if, we're the, if that's the faithful remnant, I, I, I don't want to say that either because, you know, I don't want to try yeah. to um, make any claims on who's faithful and who's not. But um, yeah. I think that's kind of, you know, that's where the conflict is right now. Yeah. That's great. Um, I'm curious about like spiritual practices, uh, spiritual practices that have become important to you, or maybe spiritual practices that you recognize as forming that you might recommend to others. Well, being a United Methodist, which uh, you know, in England, when John and Charles Wesley started their Holy Club, they were uh, yeah, it was a pejorative to be called methodical or Methodist, and and so yeah. they really focused on spiritual discipline. So, um, and and you know, Wesley's theology, which is you know followed in the tradition of Christian, uh, the central Christian tenets, is that you know these are means of grace. They're they're not grace themselves, but they're ways that grace becomes real to us, and so. Um, I find that they've been very important in my own life and, and as a leader trying to help others uh, in their own faith formation. The two that are, uh, I would say, um, most ingrained for me are um, prayer and meditation. I, um, I'm, I'm a big f uh, follower of habit formation and mm -hmm. uh, actually have a book about habit formation. But, uh, you know, being able to develop habits means they're automatic. You don't have to think about them. And so uh, first thing I do when I get up in the morning is intercessory prayer. And and it is a bit methodical. I have a list of names I go through, family, friends, colleagues, sick, grieving. Um, mm -hmm. But it 
if I think what it does for me is help uh, keep me uh, grounded, you know, that this is not about me. This is about how I am serving other people. And then the meditation, uh, I always tried meditating, you know, sitting still and that never worked for me. I just fall asleep, mm. but I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm also a runner. And I heard uh, Krista Tippett, I think her, uh, has a show on NPR called On Being. Yeah. And she talked about how she actually was able to start meditating when she was doing yoga, you know, the movement helped her. And, and ah. so what I realized is, you know, uh, I started running without uh, music. I used to listen to, mm-hmm. you know, contemporary yep. Christian music and thought that was a time of praise, but, you know, running without music, just running and letting kind of my mind meditate on, yeah. uh, you know, whatever, uh, whatever the Holy Spirit puts in front of me, that's been an important part of my day. Um, so I would, that's great. I, yeah, that's great. I, I actually, uh, ran for about 20 years. I had to stop because of a back injury, but I found the same thing that running without music became a more spiritual experience for me um, than with music. Yes. Well, we could spend the whole time on this, I think. I love <laughs> your answers, but I want to move on to some of your work. You alluded to it. You have a couple books, like you said, one on habits. And the other one I want to talk about is Anxious Church, Anxious People. And it's in the field of systems theory, which we alluded to earlier. But tell me, if you can, what kind of prompted you to write this book? Well, um, I guess when I when I first encountered family systems theory and it became very important to me in my own leadership as a pastor, um, you know, it was like, wow, this is great. Uh, and then when I became the director of a camp and retreat ministry, I started doing workshops for other clergy to share um, you know, how this, how, what we call leadership through self-differentiation, this idea of using systems theory to help you become a better leader. Uh, yeah. and when I did these workshops, I was finding that people were having a hard time getting it. Um, and, and when I talked to people who tried to read Edwin Friedman's book, Generation to Generation, they said, well, I just can't get through it because it is dense. And so I felt <laughs> yeah. like, <laughs> I felt like it, I, there needed to be something out there that helped people to understand it in, in more plain language, a more mm, accessible yeah. um, uh, volume. So that's what I tried to do. I, I kind of think I'm simple. And so I try to make things simple for people. So. Yeah. I know when I read that book, I take it a chapter at a time just so I could process what I read and not get overloaded. Well, take a minute if you would, and just tell folks who are out there who aren't familiar with family systems theory or systems theory, just kind of what's the general idea of what it's about. Well, the general idea of systems theory is that um, when things are, when there's upset or problems or, you know, things are going wrong, we, we don't try to identify one person and fix them or put it all on them. And that's, that's typically what we tend to do. And what that does is that absolves us of our own input into the system, our own behavior and how that might contribute to the situation at hand. And so what systems theory teaches is, we can only take responsibility for ourselves, but if we can do it in in a healthy way, if we can you know express what we believe, ex- express what we stand for, but also uh, do it in a non-anxious way and stay emotionally connected to everybody else in the system, then we actually provide opportunities for positive change. And what most systems 
tend to do is tend to push back against change. And that comes through anxiety and conflict and, and people trying to blame others and not take responsibility for self. And this happens in, in a family. This happens in congregations. This happens in organizations. And so, you know, I, I found that this was really helpful to me to understand uh, the congregational system, uh, my own family of origin, and even the ministry I lead now. Yeah, that's great. I want to look at. I want to. I want to dive into some of your themes from your book, and they're kind of g- general or general general themes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you write, an effective leader is a non anxious presence, and I know when I first read that, um, even just from reading some different family systems authors, I interpreted that to mean, oh, I can't be anxious. So. Tell us more uh, about kind of what that means to the idea of systems theory and then your thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I think it's that's a good point, which is um, even if you are a non-anxious presence, it doesn't mean you don't feel anxious inside. In fact, um, probably because you're trying to be a non-anxious presence, there's anxiety in you, but you are able to regulate it so your own anxiety doesn't make a difficult uh, situation worse. So the non-anxious presence is really how other people experience the leader. Um, One as not allowing their own anxiety to feed into the situation, but then also being emotionally present. And the way I like to put it is uh, an effective leader is able to say what she believes while giving others the freedom to disagree. So, you know, when when a leader is able to um, be in touch with who she is, um, claim w- what she believes and own it, but at the same time, not try to define others, not try to uh, make others agree with her, then yeah. that does is experienced as a non-anxious presence. You know, when we're around people like that, we, we want to be with people like that, even if we disagree mm. with them, because they're not trying to change us. They're not trying to form us into their image. They're able to articulate what's important to them uh, without putting any you know pressure on us to be the same. And I think that is what, that's the essence of being a non-anxious presence. It really reminds me of what you said earlier about your daughter and the, the youth kid, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you would think when you're, te- you're working with teenagers, well, you've got to inculcate values in them and you've got to, yeah. you know, make sure they have the right faith. But we also know that um, kids kids that really have faith that sticks uh, don't inherit faith. You know, they, they come to it on their own. And so that's the biggest challenge with kids growing up in the church is if they just inherit their parents' faith, um, it's it's not going to stand up when things really get challenging yeah. as an adult. And and so, you know, recognizing that and, and helping them to be become their own person really is important. That's true as a leader. You know, rec- helping other people to become their own person is really mm. important. That's great. It's funny because uh, I trained for youth ministry in Bible college and so much of what we were taught was just, it was about an indoctrination and mm, yeah. a rough way of saying it, but it's kind of the truth that it was about um, forming these young minds into who you wanted them to be. And you said what you just said too previously is forming them into, I, don't, I can't remember how you said it, forming into what they should be or who they. Yeah. Uh, they're developing their own faith, you know, and, yeah. and um, not inheriting it from somebody else. And, and yeah, 
Yeah. So related to this leadership and the non-anxious presence are these two terms, and you spoke to them, at least one of them recently in your podcast, uh, self-differentiation, which you've kind of alluded to here, and then sabotage. So speak, if you would, about self-differentiation and and maybe just define kind of what you've spoken about previously to that. Yeah. So self-differentiation, the way Edwin Friedman defines it is the ability to define one's own goals and values in the midst of surrounding togetherness pressure. And Mm -hmm. in in any system, whether it's a family, church, or organization, there is always pressure to conform. You know, there, there are unwritten rules. There are these values that we all agree to abide by. And sometimes claiming our own beliefs, our own goals will come in conflict with that pressure to conform. And so being self-differentiated is the ability to say that and claim that in a healthy way, Uh, not fighting with other people, not withdrawing from other people. That's why I say, you know, an effective leader is able to say what she believes while giving others the freedom to disagree. That's the essence of self-differentiation. I know what I believe and it's okay if we disagree and I respect your, even if you disagree with me, that's, that is the essence of self-differentiation. And then sabotage is this concept that Friedman really developed. Uh, Murray Bowen, that's what the podcast was about. Murray Bowen is the uh, really the pioneer of th- this branch mm-hmm. of family systems theory that Friedman built on. And uh, what Friedman describes as sabotage is the system pushing back with surrounding togetherness pressure when there is change. Anytime there is change in a system, it makes people feel uncomfortable. And, mm-hmm. and that change is then uh, people unwittingly, they unknowingly, that's, uh, that's why some people don't like the word sabotage because it's really yeah. not conscious. They unwittingly create this pressure to conform, to go back to the old normal um, and what that does is that puts pressure on the leader because uh, the leader is, you know, feeling, wow, I don't, I don't, I don't like this conflict. I don't like this pressure. And and they have what Friedman calls is a failure of nerve. They they give in. And and so anytime you're trying to lead change in, in any system, um, you can expect that there is going to be this unwitting pushback that that people are going to be uncomfortable about it, and the least healthy emotionally, the least differentiated are the ones who are going to create havoc in some way or another and it's most often not by actually dealing with the subject matter they they find something yeah. else to pick on, you know, yeah. um, because if they could do it in a healthy way, they would just say, you know, I, I don't, you know, pastor, I don't agree with this. And when somebody talks like that, I think we ought to listen because they're saying it in a healthy way. Um, but when somebody starts, you know, blaming you for the length of your sermons or, you know, they start yeah. talking about, uh, oh, how we shouldn't be doing fellowship hour this way. It's, it actually really is a reaction to this other change we made in the ministry. And, and th- they're just um, doing it because they don't know how to express themselves in a healthy way. Yeah. You know what? You did this on a podcast recently where you talked about sabotage being unwitting and part of me like kind of (laughs) um my insides kind of uh fight back and say oh no i'm sure people are doing it on purpose but but begrudgingly i've kind of accepted that your point that it is it is 
probably the vast majority of the time, like unwitting people change is just butting up against people's kind of preconceived notions or long held ideas and nothing. It's people aren't like actively conspiring to sabotage. It's just like they're, they're trying to keep the, keep the status quo, so to speak. Right. Right. And, and if they, if they knew it was happening um, and and could express themselves in healthy ways, they would probably do it. But what what happens mm-hmm. is is there's just this anxiety that builds up, and they find the easiest thing to focus on to um, uh, you know allow that anxiety to be unleashed. I, I I give an example. This is more of a hypothetical example, but mm-hmm. you know if if uh, I have a bad day at work with a coworker and I'm not able to express myself in a healthy way uh, with the coworker. And I, I go home and I start picking on my wife. I, you know, I start trying to pick a fight with my wife. Um, mm-hmm. Then, you know, if she if she blows up, if she fights back, then I've gotten the fight I've wanted. I've found an outlet for that anxiety, and yeah. I've not had to deal with my coworker. Yeah. And that's kind of how sabotage works. And I'm not, you know, I maybe in retrospect, I might say, well, you know, I really shouldn't have done that because it was really this other thing. But most of the time we don't, you know, we're not that, (laughs) we don't reflect that much on our actions. Hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Um, You're alluding to another point uh, and I'm, I'm, this may or may not be accurate, but the idea of triangulation mm-hmm. or triangles in systems theory is an example of of you like uh, latch or lashing out at your wife in this <laughs> imagined scenario. Is that an example of triangulating where mm-hmm. the real issue is between you and this thing that happened at work, but you're bringing your wife into it to disperse your own anxiety? Absolutely, a triangle occurs when um, you two people or issues a people person and issue are not comfortable and so instead of dealing directly with each other they you know find a third thing to focus on so in this case you know i would be triangling my wife because um i'm not comfortable in dealing with um you know my coworker, and we do it all of the time in fact murray bowen said (laughs) all the time yeah murray bowen says it's the most stable form of a relationship because in general most people aren't well differentiated enough to actually Mm -hmm. have those kind of healthy conversations with each other so we just go and triangle other people see i didn't understand that when i first read it but now like it makes sense like it's not that triangles are the best form of relationship it's just that because it's so hard to maintain a relationship with someone we're in tension with we we go around forming triangles just to make things easier for us that's right that's how we cope with life <laughs> yeah well i want to talk keep talking about this in the context of church and the anxiety the idea of anxiety spreading in the church um one author i've read talks about uh you know anxiety being more can you know one of the most contagious things that can spread in a church faster than even like an even like an illness we're in now or pandemic we're in now like the the the, the anxiety is f- spreading faster than the virus for instance yeah yeah and the the way it spreads is um somebody usually it's one of the least emotionally healthy persons uh gets up in arms about something and, yeah. and like i said uh, it's it's typically not the thing that is the issue. It's not the thing that's causing the change, but sometimes it can be. Yeah. What happens then is that those people in the middle 
who are maybe not well differentiated, but they're well-meaning, uh, what they do is they try to appease that person yeah. uh, or they try to fix the situation for that person, which automatically creates more anxiety and more pressure to conform to the old norms. And and what it takes is it takes a handful of leaders and especially the primary leader, you know, mm-hmm. that'd be the pastor or in a, a ministry, the director or whatever, um, to be able to maintain a non-anxious presence and to be able to not give in to the pressure to conform, but at the same time remain connected to those people who are resisting. And that's that's the hardest part because what we wanna do is when there's that kind of conflict, that kind of anxiety in the church, we wanna surround ourselves with all the people that agree with us and kind of, you know, you know, let's let's all band together and fight this thing. Well, all that does is polarize the church even more. And so if a leader can say to the most anxious people, you know, I'm, I really, I really care about you and I, I care about your feelings, but um, I, I can't agree with this. You know, I can't agree with what you're saying. And if you, yeah. you know, if you give us a chance, we'll, we'll see, you know, maybe, maybe in the long run, this won't be the place for you. You know, now that's sometimes people can <laughs> consider that yeah. provocative, but um, it's giving people a choice for their own destiny, which is yeah. re- really a, 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 you know, part of that. And that seems so bold, I don't know about you and your your ministry training, but for me, it seemed like the idea was like to be nice to everybody, and you want to fix mended, you know, you want to mend relationships, fix those broken relationships, and so the at least for me, the tendency is to try to like repair, just to rush over and repair that division. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is so much the opposite. It's just so paradoxical to at least how I've interpreted, you know, what ministry is supposed to be about. Yeah, and and I think uh, it's um, it being nice is a big big part of that. I mean, but it's also um, trying to make people I don't want to say happy, but satisfied. You know, trying to reduce yeah. conflict, and and you know w- what that does is that creates a system where it's harder and harder to change things. In other words, the more people appease the you know, most anxious in the congregation, the harder it will be, will be over time to actually lead any kind of significant change. And mm. and sometimes, I mean, there I had an example of, uh, I had an experience where we actually sold a uh, very beloved uh, retreat center that we owned back in 2005 and had a big supporter of our ministry who was really um, upset about it really really yeah. upset uh, and every time i had contact with this person it was awkward extremely mm. awkward but you know i did my best to be a non-anxious presence to stay yeah. connected i did not agree with them but i you know i wanted to let them know i i still cared about them and it took about two years of mm-hmm. you know maybe contact three four five times a year and and that person actually came around and became fully mm. supportive of the direction we were going in. And that's where the, you know, family systems theory helped me the most because it, it told me in theory, if I, if I am able to express myself in a healthy way, what I really mm-hmm. believe, but also stay connected to this person, they will eventually either come along or <laughs> give up or whatever. And, and they actually became one of the biggest supporters. That's what drives me crazy about, systems theory is that I want it to like not work because it's harder. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then I keep buying it working. I'm like, ah, darn it. I guess I got to keep doing this. Yeah. I yeah. want to be below me. Well, I wanted to ask you too, kind of, so we've kind of been, we've kind of been touching on this, this idea of leadership in a church. You serve in the United Methodist Church that has kind of a different uh, governance structure somewhat than my context, which is Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Um, certainly, there's different in the evangelical world. There's different uh, governance structures in different mainline contexts. There's different governance structures. What does is, what is systems theory leadership look like, do you think? Is there a difference in these different governance structures? Of churches, or the um, basic principles are the same. No, I think I think um, this idea of leading as a non-anxious presence, leading as a self-differentiated leader, can work in any system because it's not about you know. For example, you know, in our con- in our context, we have bishops, and a bishop, yeah, a bishop could be authoritarian, and a, a bishop could tell everybody what to do, but I guarantee you that you're not going to have a healthy system because nobody likes to be told what to do and people are going to then start unleashing their anxiety in unhealthy ways. The the healthy leader is all about the mission. And Mm -hmm. if, if the leader is able to stay focused on the mission and as I said, claim what she believes, this is where I think we should go knowing that she may or may not be right that, you know, that, this is just what I'm discerning, God, but but then encouraging passionate uh, debate, passionate discussion by other healthy people as what they believe the mission should be or mm-hmm. the direction should be. And in the end, then the, the leader does have to decide. But uh, Patrick Lencioni in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, he talks about this. If, if everybody feels like they've been heard almost always, it, even if the decision is not their choice, they will support it because yeah. you're, they're focused on, you know, people, people aren't about their own agendas. They're not about their own, you know, advancement, whatever. They're just focused on what is best for the mission of our church or the mission of our ministry. And, and if the, the leader can help people stay focused on that and, and be able to, you know, experience, uh, express her or his uh, beliefs on that in a healthy way, then give other people the freedom to disagree and to passionately defend their position. You know, that's all you can ask. And I, I think what that does is that promotes other people to be more healthy too. So it will help other people express what they believe and also help other people to show respect for people who disagree with them, especially yeah. if the focus is on the mission. Yeah. It reminds me of, I was talking to someone once who worked in like, who had, who had once had a job in like collections and they found the most helpful training they received in working that hard job of trying to build people for their collection, their long standing debt wasn't like offering them discounts on their debt, but just saying like, I hear you. Mm. Yeah. And when people like felt like their voice was heard, there's like, okay, how do I pay? Yep. People want to be heard. I mean, look That's at what's it. going on right now in, yeah. in our country with the, you know, the, the uh, peaceful protests uh, mm-hmm. over racial injustice. Uh, people want to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. As we're recording this, we're what, like two weeks in after the, the killing of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Yep. Roughly. So it's a great point. Um, I wanted to ask in my context, at least there's this, there's a big emphasis now on kind of flat organizations and 
what I interpret or what I understand is kind of a a diminishment on like soul leaders. So I'm uh, this is kind of a two part question. Like, a does system theory promote hierarchies? And B, like, how does that balance with this kind of emphasis, at least as I see it, on like flat organizations? Well, I think in most organizations, you you do have to have a leader. Um, it can be a flat organization or a hierarchical one, and how that leader handles herself or himself is really the key. And I think goes kind of kind of goes back to my last answer, which is if that leader is really focused on the on the mission, is able to articulate her own vision, and and then uh, promotes people expressing how they think it should happen. Uh, in the end, the leader still has to make the decision. So mm-hmm. I don't know whether I, I, I don't necessarily think systems theory favors a hierarchy or a flat organization. I think it, in general, the, the smaller an organization, it is, the easier it is to be flat, uh, the yeah. larger an organization, the harder, just because yeah. um, you have so many people and, and you know, what, What's important in, in hierarchical organizations is, well, I, I think it's as important in any organization. The leader has to be able to cast her or his vision. Mm-hmm. They have to be able to say, this is where I see God leading us. Um, I may be wrong, but this is where I see yeah. God leading us. Uh, pe- people want to know what the leader thinks. They don't want the leader to be, you know, a, a, a dictator, uh, yeah. but they also don't want to be leaderless. You know, they, they don't want to be just out there on their own trying to find their own way. Um, what the, by, get, by casting a vision, the, the leader then provides context for other people to think of how God might be leading them within that or outside of it, you know, and, and to challenge it. You know, there are times when, uh, you know, as a leader, our vision may not be correct. We might be misreading something and it's great to have people challenging you when you're in that situation. Yeah. Well, you had to, you kind of live this out. And that's why I want to talk about this because you've, you've really been in the midst of these kind of difficult conversations and questions as a leader in the work of your summer, summer camp. So um, if you want to take it just a minute, to talk about kind of your context there in the summer camp and then what, how you've kind of had to flesh these things out and practice like right now in the midst of this COVID pandemic. Yeah, well, I mean, as as we all know, a lot of things have changed, and things like summer camp just, uh, you know, they have all of the things that we're not supposed to be doing right now, <laughs> except being outside. The outside yeah. part is good, but you know, being close together, being in in large groups, and that type of thing. And so, you know, go, coming out of the spring, we we knew that we weren't going to be able to run camp in June. We just, in, in our state, in Maryland, we've been reopening very gradually and yeah. we could tell that it just wasn't going to happen. So we canceled the first three weeks of camp, but we really thought, thought we had a chance to open July 5th. And so we could run five weeks of camp. And we also knew we couldn't do it the way we always did because then you have like a hundred kids in a, in a fellowship hall, you know, singing songs and doing crazy yeah. things. And, and, you know, that we, knew that just wasn't going to happen like what what camp's about though right yeah yeah i mean it's what makes the experience for kids Mm -hmm. yeah what what the cdc and the american camp association did was they uh, published guidelines on how you could do camp more safely i don't want to say safe because i think nobody knows but it was to 
uh, have groups of eight campers and two staff, a group of no more than 10. And they could, they could go through the week without wearing a mask. Um, they would eat separately. We would have takeout meals, no touch meals and all that kind of stuff. But whenever we did large group stuff, each of those groups as pods, so to speak, would be a safe distance from each of the other groups. So you might have yeah. 50 or 100 kids, but none of those 10 would ever interact with another. So we, I mean, we put in an exhaustive amount of work. Our staff was really great in trying to uh, figure out how to make that work. And the reason we did it was we felt like or the reason I did it, I mean, we, we did have some pushback from people on staff who thought it was kind of silly to do this exercise. Yeah. We should just cancel. But I felt like um, this was an opportunity to serve kids and families who were really going to need it this summer. You know, kids have been in, inside. The families yeah. have been all together Parents, at home. And, kids, trust me, yes. <laughs> yeah, tremendous amount of stress. And I thought, you know, well, even if it's not camp as we know it, it's yeah. still an opportunity for kids and families to to have something really special. Um, so what what I learned though, is, I learned a couple of things. One was that um, the, the really was taking its toll on me, and I tried to I tried to get my board to decide for me. So we we had yeah. a, we were having a board meeting every two weeks via Zoom, and and I kind of put it to them to see if you know they they could decide and and it was five five you know five who said they wanted to run camp and five who didn't and of course right. of course um and and then they said you know this is a really tough decision for you jack but whatever you decide we'll <laughs> we'll support you um and yeah and, but I re- what i realized was no it's it's my job as a leader to just you know to at least make the recommendation or say this is what i think we should do the board yeah. are, they're great people they're well-meaning they do a good job but they're not as close as i am and 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 by the same token, the staff, you know, they all have their pieces of yeah. the, you know, the the puzzle. But um, I, I'm the one who's it's my job to try to figure it out. And so, um, you know, it was a it was a really challenging time for me. But uh, I I learned that um, I not to react to other people who were trying to pressure me one way or the other, but to try to maintain a non-anxious presence. Um, I learned to, you know, stay focused on the mission and, Mm -hmm. and I I learned to, to try to um, not make the decision based on, um, you know, money, make it on mission, but also not put the ministry in the position of risking a financial disaster. And so we, we ultimately decided not to, um, run camp. Um, I think I shared in the po- the podcast I did on it that um, one of the things I've found is um, I, I have now an orientation towards uh, going without hearing God say go, but just based on what I know of scripture and mission, you know, w- we should be doing this. We should be out going and and then looking for stop signs for God to tell, tell me no, mm-hmm. you know, or tell us no. And yeah. that's what happened. We, we ended up with stop signs that made it um, really risky financially uh, that if we could do this and actually put the ministry in danger of closing and uh, really couldn't, didn't want to do that. So, yeah, I recommend going back and listening to that podcast. It's a fairly recent one uh, and we'll take a break uh, after this, but I find such a correlation between kind of that scenario you lived out and what many churches felt and really are starting to feel again, whether towards the idea of like, you know, back three months ago, it was, do we cancel in-person services? And now it's, do we resume in-person services? And 
you know, correct me if I'm wrong here or I'm misunderstanding you, but I've kind of had that same philosophy as, as you've alluded to, at least as I understand you alluding to saying, Hey, you know, you can hear the board and involve the board, but at some point, like you have the most knowledge of the situation, most understanding as the leaders of the pastor. And it really needs to be your decision, or at least big recommendation. Yes. Yeah. And the church is a little bit different because they're volunteers and there's governing boards and things like that. So, you know, in that case, the, you know, the, the, the governing board could overrule the pastor. Um, yeah. But it is the pastor's responsibility to make the recommendation to say, this is what I believe, you know, and here's why. Yeah. Well, let's take a break and we'll uh, come back with some closing questions. Sounds good. All right, we're back with Reverend Jack Chitama, author and ordained elder in the United Methodist Church and camp director, as we've been hearing. Um, <laughs> some closing questions you can take as seriously or as fun as you'd like to, but if you're pope for a day, what's your big move? Um, well, uh, not having grown up in the Roman Catholic Church and not knowing a lot about it, but uh, knowing enough from studying uh, church history, I think I would, uh, I would, um, allow the marriage of priests, uh, oh. would allow the ordination of women, mm. and I uh, would allow the ordination of LGBTQ and um, the blessing of same-sex marriages. Um, Making so, some waves in your one yeah, day. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, but I was only, it's only for a day, right? So what can they do for do to me? <laughs> I'll do all that, and then I'm gone. So gone. Um, yeah, yeah, you're gone. Yeah. And sure. and you know what I have I have the, the greatest respect for the Roman Catholic Church and especially for this Pope I think this Pope is really um, doing a lot to try to um, bring reform but they also have you know two millennia of of um, mm. institution yeah. to try to fight and and that's that's a big challenge for anyone so yeah well uh, I feel like I should know this as as since you're Methodist but what's the theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? Like, is it Wesley or I should say one of the Wesleys or is it someone well, else? You know, I was thinking about this cause you know, you did send me these questions in advance. It, um, I, I was thinking, you know, well maybe Wesley, maybe St. Francis, but actually uh, more, most recently it's Martin Luther King uh, hmm. because uh, you know, I know that he was a complicated person yeah. um, and, and you know, every, each one of us is, but I would really like to, um, just spend some time with him and, and, you know, ask him how he uh, took his own experience, his theology and, you know, what he knew from, you know, from Jesus and then also Gandhi and, you know, how all that um, enabled him to create a movement because uh, in, in systems, family systems theory, the country is a system. And yeah. he was a self-differentiated leader who yeah. created this tremendous movement. I mean, I mean, he wasn't the only one, but right. uh, it, to me, it was his leadership uh, through self-differentiation that tipped the balance. And, and you know, I think we're looking for people like that right now. Absolutely. Well, speaking of historical, um, Phyllis Tickle, who I imagine you're probably familiar with, um, there's an evangelical guy, Brady Shear, who talks about kind of similar idea about this being like a 500-year type moment in history. So what do you think history will, will remember 
this current time and place for in the church? Well, uh, as far as the church goes, I think um, one thing is perhaps is that it got shoved from the 19th century into the 21st century all at once because of the pandemic. Um, most of our United Methodist churches are very traditional. and I want, I want you to repeat that for our listeners. It got, <laughs> it got shoved from the 19th century to the 21st century, right? Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a great way of saying it. <laughs> because you know, a lot of our churches and, and mainline churches are still singing yeah. hymns from the 18th and 19th century. Um, you know, the, the 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 contemporary hymn is "How Great Thou Art," you know, so uh, which is written in the 50s, I think. But yeah. um, you know, if you think about it, most of them are doing virtual worship of some kind mm-hmm. now. And if you would, if a pastor would have proposed that. Four months ago, yeah. <laughs> they would have gotten laughed out, and yep. um, but now here we are. Uh, but I um, I do coaching for clergy, and one of the uh, clergy I coach is uh, the pastor of a small church, twenty to twenty five people on a Sunday. Most of them are seventy to eighty years old. Oh, and yeah. and when this first started, uh, she was writing an epistle to them every week. So and wow. and it was being mailed to most of them. So kind of had her sermon in there, and then prayer requests and news. So there was there was no virtual worship. Um, but then about three or four weeks in, she detri- decided to try Zoom, and they were so happy to see each other. There were like a dozen people the first week, yeah. and then fifteen, and then and now she's got the whole congregation meeting virtually. So uh, I you know I think that's one of the things that will be remembered. I think the other is um, the battle in the mainline church over LGBT plus inclusion. And I think, uh, you know, I just, I think it's only a matter of time. I think it's like slavery and the ordination of women that it will look back and say, um, you know, gosh, how did it take so long? But uh, Mm. um, we'll see. Uh, Could be wrong about that. (laughs) So. Kind of related to this question, what do you think Christianity will look like in 500 years? Wow. Um, well, I'm hoping we can get beamed to church so we don't have to uh, drive or whatever. Right. Um, hey, uh, you know, I think it, it, I don't know 500 years, but I think somewhere in the future and maybe the not too distant future. Uh, church is going to have this combination of virtual and, and for lack of a better word, real. I don't think, I don't think people are ever going to want to give up on gathering together. Yeah. I don't think we should. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I'm hearing from many uh, pastors is that there are people who are coming to their virtual services that never set foot in the church. Yeah, and it's it's because there's this deep spiritual hunger out there. But at least in the mainline church, uh, we've we've figured out so many ways for to make people feel like outsiders. That, oh man, we should do uh, the entire another podcast just on that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you know, and the, you know, the context you're in, you're the reason you're doing that is be is to try to wipe that out, right, and start right, from scratch. Right. Um, but you know, there's so many of our churches that it's, it's hard to wipe that out. And so, uh, the idea of the virtual is that it creates a safe way for people to dip their toe in. And, and so what I see happening, what I hope will happen at least in the next decade to two decades is that we're able to create virtual communities where people can connect in meaningful ways 
And then we're able to give them ways to live out that faith by serving in the community, you know, whether it's yeah. homeless or, you know, uh, those who are hungry or, you know, kids in need or what, you know, whatever, uh, fighting racism. And, yeah. and by doing that, uh, the, the actual congregational part of it becomes the way people come together and celebrate. But, but mm. I, I see people connecting to Jesus by first doing it virtually and then finding a way to, uh, you know, live, be the hands and feet in Jesus in the community. And then they connect with the body because, um, because they found that all of a sudden Jesus has given them a reason to live. Wow. Well, these last five minutes have been just as good as the rest of the podcast. Yeah. Or over time, I'd say we should keep going, but I want to respect your time. So where can people find out more about you? Uh, the website, the com. There's no punctuation in that. Uh, the com, And uh, I do a blog uh, post every two weeks. I do a two for Tuesday email where I just recommend um, mm-hmm. articles and podcasts and things. I'll make sure to put a plug for your podcast in there. Uh, oh, thank you. And uh, I don't plug things that I get money for, but I just try to, you know, curate things and, and help yeah. people out. Uh, and uh, of course the non-anxious leader podcast. And there's also a network, a network.thenonanxiousleader.com, which is a closed community and where where we can just share about uh you know how we're trying to live out being a non-anxious presence and that's free there's you know no charge for it so you can you can uh connect with that as well great great well again to our listeners i highly recommend the podcast just as an easy way to get introduced to uh, jack and his work each episode is about 15 minutes right Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, easily accessible, easily digestible, and just a great way to be introduced maybe for the first time or again to systems theory and some of the ways about leading. So uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, peace be with you. And also with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks and go in peace.